welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today, I have the great pleasure of having a good friend of mine on the show. Uh, Andre Manakovsky is someone who I've known for many years and is uh, actually a very good friend of mine as well. So I am thrilled to have Andre with us today. Andre, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. And um... I appreciate being part of your show. Uh, good morning, everybody. Absolutely. So, Andre, where are you in the world today? Are you in Moscow? Are you in Cyprus? Where are you? <laughs> no, I am actually in Austria, in uh, Austrian Alps. The oh, that's fantastic. Lagan, yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you for taking the time and speaking with, uh, with me and the listeners today. Um, so, you know, Andre, this podcast is really focused on what's going to be global luxury in nature. And I know that you have built a business that really is focused in the same. But before we even get to the conversation and everything that we're going to be talking about today, one of the fascinating things that I love about you is actually that you're an academic. You actually came to the real estate world and you've built an incredible business. But more importantly, I believe you were a professor of economics at the University of Moscow, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I was yeah, a professor of economics and uh, marketing at the University of Moscow, correct? Uh, even before actually Soviet Union collapsed, it was a Soviet time at that time, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So tell me a little bit about your background, your journey, how you actually found your way from the academic world to now this, this great success with the business world. I think that would be a fascinating story. Well, I think it, it was. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I sometimes I, I look back at my life um, and uh, I'm kind of fascinated myself <laughs> of different aspects and different changes and the angles. Uh, I was uh, happy to look at the life and different historical events from because I was born deep into the Soviet kind of era where uh, like it was a communism around me and I was brought up as kind of as a, a child. I was born in Moscow as a child surrounded by communist propaganda and I even was part uh, kind of this a youth communist organization which was a must uh, if you wanted to enter university or anything like that. So um, again, yes, we were critical about uh, looking around us and we've been quite a smart bunch of people just uh, with a critical view of what's going on. But having said that, we were part of this, you know, mentally, we inevitably were, were part of the system. So it took some time before we started kind of to learn that there is a different world around us and uh, was obviously iron curtain, you know, around Soviet Union. But I was lucky enough to enter um, and to graduate from Moscow State Institute of International Relations. And I learned a couple of foreign languages, uh, English and, and French, and I was quite fluent in them. And that helped actually to look uh, above this iron curtain and see that there is a world there. And then luckily Gorbachev came with his reform. If you remember this word perestroika, of course. Russian means, yeah, means kind of changes, okay? And he was quite naive in trying to make those changes, preserving the, the substance of the Soviet Union, uh, but he opened, he opened the Pandora box, okay? So, like, really, it kind of started developing uh, without his control, and he lost immediately the control of all these events. 
And I was very, very fortunate to be part of this historical phase. So I remember being adult already, how the Soviet Union was with the Brezhnev and Andropov and uh, all these funny guys running the Communist Party and just trying to kind of survive in this competitive environment. And then Gorbachev, so I was witness of all these events, how the Soviet Union collapsed. And, uh, <clears throat> and that was also a fascinating uh, uh, experience. Um, so how does that get then, you into your, your um, becoming a professor of economics? This is a very fascinating story thus far. And, you know, there, there is obviously all of the historical factors and, and really how change happens. And I think it was really interesting what you were starting to say that you were um, almost conditioned to be critical and question. And so you had an appetite for knowledge. So take me through that, that journey. I'm, I'm loving this historical background. So how do you get from where you are now to being uh, a professor at the university? Well, I, I think at that time, yeah, I, I was, well, I was a young guy and I was uh, kind of uh, about to marry. Um, and uh, even the marriage was kind of controlled by the Soviet state and Soviet government. And because I was kind of trained as economist, supposed to be kind of expert in uh, foreign affairs, okay, they definitely wanted to control whom I marry. And I <laughs> kind of... Uh, uh, made some decision which was against the rules and they kind of threatened me of cutting and closing my career if I uh, proceed, which I did. I, in a way, I, I have, I had some guts just to resist KGB and their instruction away and I lost my career. So I didn't have choice, much choice at that time, but to go and go into academia. Though I was quite entrepreneurial and active, but I, there was not many choices left to me. So I, in a way, was forced into this world, which I like, you know, like, uh, you know, this expression, go with the flow. I went with the flow. <laughs> right. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, it's sort of like you start thinking about, you know, it, it, it's probably very difficult for a lot of the listeners to really even think about those types of choices that one had to make where you really were following your your choice of, of love and who you wanted to marry, but that really affected your business and your um, your career, as it were, because of those choices, which I think that when you start thinking about it from a global perspective, it becomes almost an impossible sort of thing to, to think about in modern day. And yet, you know, uh, personally, as you know, my father was, was, was Cuban, and um, was the regime prior to, to Castro. And he had uh, his own challenges because of that in his native country. And so I think that there is that sense of external factors that really weigh in, which really most people in modern society, it, it's difficult for them to even fathom that. Well, you mean probably the more, by modern society, you mean Western society, and correct. this is correct. Yeah, Indeed. yeah the Western yeah. democracies, yeah, they're built on different bases, and people have got used to the system of checks yeah. and balances, and personal freedom, and uh, uh, private property, and all these fundamental kind of uh, uh, elements of, of life. Okay, yeah. 
in, in Russia or the Soviet Union rather at that time, we didn't have that. We didn't have checks balances. We didn't have a free election. We didn't have a free choice in anything. Even the idea of just traveling abroad was absolutely no go. You know, you could not buy tickets to go. You know, we had so-called um, exit visas. So you had to get about 24 signatures, 24 wow. permissions wow. of officials just to get a permission to leave, okay? I mean, leave, not leave forever, but to travel, for example, for one week for holidays. Wow. Okay? Yeah, so that was the reality we were living in. That's why probably people like myself were much more appreciative of uh, uh, kind of achievements of uh, modern democracy and all this kind of modern society than anybody else. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so now you're a professor at the university. Tell me how that trajectory then continues on and you get into the real estate business. You at one point jumped back from academia into the business world. Talk me through that, Andre. Well, I think there was one more kind of um, stage, uh, which okay. you probably don't remember, because I was quite active. So academia for me was like, um, yes, an opportunity to look at uh, different trends in the world and see the macroeconomic uh, developments in different countries and do the comparative analysis of those developments. And I was fascinated by cross-cultural differences, why certain nations develop the way that other nations cannot, okay? I was always looking at these elements and trying to figure out what are fundamental reasons for that. But the moment Gorbachev uh, came with his opportunity, I immediately jumped on that. And I actually, because I was pretty good academic, I was a professor of economics at that time, and I was sure. teaching a lot and writing uh, cases and books and all these things. I started the first private business school in Russia, okay? So I threw my energy into something which was related to academia because the, the business school is supposed to be teaching new generation of Russians. But to build a school, that was a big project because there was no business school in Russia, okay? So mine was actually the first private business school which required uh, all the elements. I mean, developed the program, the higher faculties, which Russia didn't have at that time, build the program, you know, write cases, write books, you know. And I remember at that time, for example, to find a professor of marketing was impossible because there was none. Okay? Uh, or like even the world kind of corporate finance uh, was like, what is this? Because was no corporation, no finance. <laughs> accounting was a very specific Russian bookkeeping, very far from modern accounting. So anything you, we were starting in terms of teaching, was like from scratch, okay? So we had to actually uh, look at the West and uh, take cases, take textbooks, invite foreign professors to actually help us to build a, a new case. And my first project uh, was a, a project I started with a professor from Harvard Business School. His name was Tom Piper, who was head of executive education in Harvard Business School at that time when he suggested he raised money from U.S. Congress just to, to train Russian managers in U.S. business school. And I sort of proposed this idea. I said, if you, if you continue to do that, all this manager will be probably lured and kind of uh, by big corporation will stay in U.S. or Canada just uh, to start their career. If you want to help mother Russia, you rather train the trainers 
because then they will come back and they will multiply the knowledge uh, in Russia and they will try respective managers who will hopefully stay in Russia and actually build the, the new democratic environment and society. And that's what we did with it. So we pre-selected professors in Russia who didn't speak much English, who were not aware of these new modern things. We trained them in English first, first year, and then we sent them to leading business school like Stanford, um, Harvard and the Wharton and Darden University of Virginia just to be retrained. Okay, so that was my big international uh, project I actually built. And it was quite successful. That is so fascinating. I didn't even remember that about you. The fact that you yeah. built the first private business school. I mean, you know, talk about an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, and um, so, okay, so I'm, I'm going to stay, stay with this story because it's fascinating, Andre. <laughs> so yeah, talk okay. me through. So, okay, so now you've gotten your business school. You've trained your professors at the top Ivy League colleges around the United That's States. That's correct. Yeah, and that's then correct. they come back to Russia. And they, all, they all came back 100%. And that was the idea of training the trainers and let right. them multiply the knowledge, which they've been doing. And I started the Russian Association of Business School, which is equivalent to what is called in US ASSB, American Assembly of Collegiate Schools of Business. Uh, I hope uh, your listeners know this uh, very yes. famous kind of association. Right. So we, we built this similar kind of association in Russia, and I was the first kind of head of this association. And we started just to multiply the knowledge by facilitating and helping uh, the creation of business school in, in the big cities in Russia and the republics of the former Soviet Union. Wow. Okay, that was kind of a, a big project I was involved in, which gave me a, a different perspective. Uh, though I continued to, to teach in my school in Moscow, which was called International Business School Moscow, which I kind of started uh, and I was dean of this business school at that time. And I also was visiting professor in a number of the schools in US and uh, in, uh, in Europe. I was teaching in Dartmouth School, University of Virginia, and uh, I was uh, teaching at INSEAD in Fontainebleau in France and Danish School of Management in Denmark and Ecole Supérieure de Commerce de Bordeaux, which is a, a business school in, in south of uh, France. Sure. And, and I'm Dean Lausanne. So I was visiting kind of a business professor a number of kind of the places. That was a, a great start. So it helped me actually to understand how the world look, looked like, you know, and what are the differences. Again, remember, I was always interested in cross-cultural differences. Okay, so I really paid my attention to those differences between different economies and different countries and nations. And, uh, and um, at some point, you know, surprisingly, I got a bit of uh, um, tired of teaching <laughs> because exactly, <laughs> I was quite entrepreneurial and, and teaching academic career is a little bit kind of, you know, same thing every year. There is a new kind of set of students and you basically teach them the same thing which is a bit uh, too much for me. So I decided I should kind of test my knowledge uh, and uh, my skills by kind of building a business. So if I know so much, I should kind of somehow capitalize on this knowledge. So, and by the way, also I had a chance to go to Harvard Business School and uh, had this top executive program there as well myself. Amazing. 
And so then you started with, uh, you, you trusted your entrepreneurial spirit. And what did you start with? Was it uh, real estate development right off the top? Or did you start with That's something great. else? Real no, estate it development. was real estate development, yeah. It was not a brokerage at, at that time. It was no, real estate development, yeah. So I was one of the first developers in Russia. And I remember this time when the word developer was unknown. People were asking me, what, what does it mean? What, what actually you do? What the developer means. So in a Russian language, we didn't have such a word. So you need kind of a few sentences to explain what does wow. it mean. And when wow. I say a few sentences, I mean true explanation. Because before that, in the planned economy of the Soviet Union, development didn't make any sense. Everything was pre-planned. One minister of finance was allocating money and a minister of construction would build it. That was it, basically. Okay? There was a special ministry called... Uh, Goes plan, which was like basically minister of planning, okay, and this ministry was kind of coordinating all the resources and allocating them kind of by by the degrees. So there was no space for private initiative uh, when the developer will pick the plot of land, decide what he wants to build there, raise money. So these elements were non-existent. So for me, it took uh, honestly some time to. Uh, people, you know, to explain what actually developer can do. It was right. a completely new thing, yeah. And I built few few buildings in Moscow, and some of them are kind of are quite landmark still. And my biggest client was uh, Swiss Bank Credit Suisse. At that time, he was moving to Russia, and they need a headquarters. So I was lucky enough just to get this uh, first class um, client who actually was buying he they bought four buildings for developments from me that would help me and they actually put a lot of pressure on me a lot of technical requirements a lot of um, uh, things which helped me actually to grow uh, and just one interesting example so when the, uh, people like myself started to do this business and trying to to get these plots of land uh, and the foreign companies were asking them about the title. 90% of Russian development didn't know what title means. Sure. Okay? So like the like, title was not existent, like per se. Everything belonged to the government. So like we had some lease contracts and all these things, but like the first uh, law, law firm moved to Russia and they started to introduce all these definitions. So I remember like how all these new things like, uh, you know, like quality control, cost control, like the first program we introduced was called Primavera. I like to control uh, uh, the development, the project management processes, like title, the whole definition about all this thing. So it was a good school for me, you know. So from academia and uh, all this world, I went straight into development and I built one of the first real estate development yeah. Well, and it sounds in a lot of ways you helped build that independent real estate industry in Russia with things like title and things like, you know, having the opportunity for other people to come in. The fact that you had a foreign um, buyer already in place, I think also was probably a bit of luck for you to help build that um, initiative so that it, if it was almost a domestic sale, it almost as though you you had to not only educate your investors for what you were building, but then you also had to educate the buyers uh, for exactly. it yeah. because it was it was all foreign for them. Absolutely, absolutely. That's fascinating. And, uh, 
I, I think I took a big advantage of this also kind of cross-cultural differences because I brought, I remember, I hired five expatriates, um, one Canadian, one American, a couple of Brits, one Italian, as project managers in my group, okay? And they brought a lot of this knowledge, but they were not aware of the Russian particularities. So it was interesting process of kind of getting them together, marrying them with the Russian experts who knew how to navigate the complicated Russian bureaucracy, but had no clue about modern project management systems. So that was a fascinating pro pro problem to, to solve, you know, to put them together and let them speak the same language, okay? Wow. It took me some time, okay? But that's what helped me actually, because I became one of the first group who were kind of using Western uh, definition technologies and uh, templates, but being quite uh, good in understanding the local environment, okay? So this combination, I, should, I think, helped me a lot and gave me this tip that um, uh, cross, cross border particularities, okay, uh, when they're properly married, can, can make huge difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I think it's interesting because you have come from an area of really serving as an advisor. And really, even when you were an entrepreneur with your first client, they were giving you a lot of uh, prerequisites. And you know, you, you really had to marry what you could do in, in your native land and then what your client's demands were. So you were always working as an advisor. And, you know, I've known you for many years, Andre, and I think what's really fascinating is that you still approach business from that entrepreneurial spirit that you've had that married with that sense of critical thinking and that global worldview. I think those three things are really what defines your vision and really what differentiates you. And I think that there is a way that you approach business, which I find fascinating, which I'd love for you to discuss a bit. And sure. I think that the brokerage almost came um, as, a, as a means to this, but you look at your client's um, portfolio, if you will, whether that's a Russian client or a, a foreign client, and you start looking at what are your holdings? Where else do you have property? Where can I assist you? What's your tax exposure? And you look at it from a very economic point of view and academic point of view because of your background. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I think that part of this almost became a solution to the needs of the clients, which is how you got into brokerage. Uh, that's correct. So I was quite, uh, I think, fortunate uh, and lucky to, at some point, uh, with your help, Michael, as well, uh, to get associated with um, a big international brand, uh, Sotheby's International Realty, when I acquired um, the rights for, for Moscow and later for Russia. And I wanted to develop that and um, uh, bring this brand into Russia. And again, to do exactly the same thing, take the Western templates and good brand and good tradition and try to adjust those things into, into Russia, where we didn't have too many good tradition of, uh, I would say, contemporary, modern uh, and civilized brokerage. Till now, the brokerage market uh, is still kind of, I would say, not much civilized with not too many rules which are being followed by 
both sides, clients and brokers, you know, like there is no regulation, there is no licenses there. So there are a lot of crazy things being done, a lot of cash transactions and a lot of cheating going on. So my idea was let's bring this kind of civilized way of doing things into this, this sector. That was my original idea when I approached you, Michael, and when we started to do these things. Uh, but if you look at the history, I was quite unfortunate because um, the, I had a very good idea, but I hit the wall, to be honest, and it was my kind of, in a way, uh, maybe it was unfortunate timing, because my idea was to, to, to not, first of all, to deal with uh, existing uh, uh, brokerage experts, because again, most of them, I would say more than 90%, I hope, I, I, I think, uh, have been uh, kind of not very professional and be, uh, I would say, not very ethical. So there are a lot of kind of games being played traditionally in this world. So again, cheating, uh, playing games was quite traditional and probably still is in a way. So I wanted to pick the young generation of, of, uh, of people. And I went to, uh, I partnered with the Moscow Institute of Psychoanalysis, okay? We developed a special scheme of testing people. With this system, we went to, to graduates of the top universities to select the right candidates. We selected them, we, we put them through this test to pick the best mind and the most uh, kind of people with the right skills and attitudes to, to this professional. Uh, and then we put them through the special training program. Okay, so I wanted to have this fresh, unspoiled minds properly trained. And that was my idea. And I wanted to bring Western, um, again, faculties and Western experts, and uh, uh, including Sotheby's uh, people. Sure. Uh, but unfortunately, that was a time when I remember this invasion in Crimea happened. And later, uh, Russian invasion into Eastern Ukraine as well. So all these things really crashed the market in Russia. Uh, they led to introduction of sanctions, international sanctions, including sanctions from US. So the market went from like a booming interest and opportunity into like standstill. It probably went down like 70% in terms of number of transactions and volumes. It was a disaster at times, and I was there ready to launch my new business, okay? So mm -hmm. timing was kind of wrong, and I had to do a lot of different things simply to survive. And that exactly at that time, I started to think what I can do uh, to, uh, to find my niche. And that's where I came uh, with the solution. So instead of kind of building a traditional uh, uh, though modern, but traditional local real estate practice, which again, most of the brokerage houses are in today's world in the West. I decided to concentrate on two things, uh, exactly what you mentioned when you tried to formulate your question. There are two fundamental elements which I decided to uh, use as my competitive advantage. A, to concentrate on cross-border transactions, because this crisis in Russia led to most of Russian high net worth individuals actually to flee from Russia. Most of them tried to liquidate their assets and move their kind of cash outside of Russia. And that's exactly kind of what I would like to help them with, okay? Uh, it was legal, like it was not kind of, uh, not, nothing it, uh, of which yes. was against, like, yeah. But people did know how to properly invest in the West. 
So that's number one. Number two, I decided to concentrate less on end users of real estate, but rather investors. So those people who invest for different reasons rather than physically living in this premises of this property, okay? So people coming to me and saying, and I was explaining how can they uh, um, diversify their assets? How can they do proper asset allocation where real estate can play a good hedging opportunity for other asset classes? Uh, we were thinking with them how to properly uh, invest in real estate where they can get this new status in terms of tax residency or getting second citizenship, okay, or things like that. So again, I was concentrating on the big wealthy uh, Russian investors, what we call high net worth individuals, trying to make a proper decision in terms of asset allocation and moving the assets in the West. That became my kind of big uh, forte, my kind of big strong point in competitive advantage. And that what brought kind of back um, my company into this uh, map of, 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 um, of business in, in a very difficult environment where anything local was a complete disaster. And you know, when there was a time that you're talking about, it was again, that moment in, in, in history. It was when I was selling real estate in, in Miami, I had a large um, uh, group of my business was um, Russian investors. And I used to fly to Moscow quite often and it was a very robust time for foreign investment into key markets around the world. And so it, it was really interesting that there was that type of advisory shift that you needed to do uh, from there, but you've done it really very successfully. Since then, you've bought not only the, the, the Moscow franchise, as you mentioned, but the rest of Russia. You have purchased the franchise for Sotheby's International Realty for Cyprus, for Hungary, Slovenia, and now Bulgaria. Um, talk to me about that. Talk to me about what that vision is. Are these key markets where your Russian consumers are now purchasing again? Because obviously the economic shift has changed again in, in Russia and, and a lot of the Russian investors are looking at other key markets around the world again. Tell me a little bit about what your vision is there. Yeah, I, I can easily understand if your listeners will say what a strange selection of territories Andre picked. Okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, and uh, I, I have to explain a little bit the rationale why I did that. First Please. of all, why would you buy the rest of Russia when Russia is basically, till now, is in a pretty difficult economic condition. So any expansion wouldn't look like a smart move. And again, it, it, it probably wouldn't if you apply the traditional philosophy of like servicing and, uh, the local markets and building the local practices in, the, in, the, in different cities in Russia. But because I decided I'm not interested in doing that, okay? My idea was to use the territory of Russia as a, as a feeder's market, okay? So in my mind and my strategy, I decided that I divide the existing markets into two categories. One category is a feeder's market. Those markets who supply clients, international clients and investors, okay? Who want to invest in real estate in different countries. Other countries than their home country, okay? 
And Russia is a perfect example of that. Russians buy a lot, like you witness in Florida, buy sure. a lot outside of Russia. So, and the second category, what I call the receiver's market. And a good example is Cyprus, okay? Uh, like 90% of transactions in Cyprus uh, are being done by foreigners, okay? So for a number of reasons, which we can discuss later, Cyprus is a very, very appealing destination for wealthy clients or wealthy investors, okay? Uh, and similar kind of uh, with some other jurisdiction, which we can discuss later. So I decided from one hand, I will be developing those kind of embassies or representations of my brand and my practice throughout the big cities of Russia, where I will probably kind of leave the local transaction more to my local partners. And I will concentrate myself on the generating the leads and interest from those territories, uh, um, uh, from clients from those territories, go abroad. Okay, that's my key interest. Again, I remind, I will remind you that my key fundamental competitive advantages are cross-border transaction and investment. So I was looking for those investors to make those cross-border transactions around Russia. From another end, example was Cyprus, okay? They're on the receiver side. So I built a practice in Cyprus, which knows exactly the requirements of my Russian clients. They know exactly what they're looking at. They know exactly the type of products we need to propose them. So they've been responsible for two things, product development, okay? And second, actually closing the deals. So they've been developing products, sending them to Russia. The Russian team were kind of promoting those things and doing business development, raising the interest and sending those leads to Cyprus. Cypriot team will close the deals. So this bridge was working quite well. And I decided if it works so well, I have to multiply this experience and find other territories where Russians go. And those territories happen to be Bulgaria, Hungary, and Slovenia. Not only, but those territories were available at that time. So I decided I will actually kind of create the same template and will multiply the same principles, the same business model to those territories from Russia. So that was an idea, which I think working quite well. And I'm building quite now quite a, a strong team of people who kind of think internationally, and that helps. And I think it's actually worked incredibly well. And, and going back to Cyprus for a moment, I think that that's a fascinating uh, territory to talk about. Cyprus is, uh, you know, there's 27 countries around the world, as you well know, that offer residency for some type of real estate purchase. And Cyprus has moved to the top of that list of countries simply because of the speed with which Cyprus has executed those um, citizenship and residency for those purchases. So um, can you talk a little bit about what that program is? I believe there's some fluctuation, but it's roughly about 2 million euros of a purchase. And then uh, that successful buyer has uh, a residency or is it actually a citizenship within three to six months? Uh, well, yeah, to clarify uh, the whole yes, market, yeah, I would uh, definitely separate two completely different uh, niches or industries. Uh, uh, one is um, targeting uh, a new residency, okay? And, right. Uh, and the second niche is mostly kind of targeting those people who want to have a second citizenship. 
sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't, okay? But that a bit different things. Most of the countries which you, Michael, mentioned, yes, they're offering uh, uh, residency status, okay? The good example of residency status is a green card. And the United States has two programs targeting those people, one called EB-5, another called E-2. Basically, sure. if you invest a certain amount of money into dedicated and specially licensed program or projects, you can get this kind of residency status in your United States. By the way, recently, EB-5 program uh, uh, increased the, the minimum requirement of investment from 500 to 900,000 US right. dollars. Okay, um, uh, in some countries, uh, uh, this requirement is much less, but again, the residency status doesn't give you kind of the ultimate and final goal, uh, a citizenship um, in different uh, jurisdictions. So for example, there are golden visas in Portugal, in Spain, in uh, Greece, but you have to be, for example, in the residency status for five, sometimes seven, in Switzerland, 12 years for non-European to be able eventually to apply for the second citizenship. Uh, in some jurisdiction, there is a special program which is called Citizenship by Investment. The abbreviation for this program is CBI, again, Citizen by Investment, mm -hmm. where you can get directly into the citizenship status by investing a certain amount of money. And Cyprus is absolute leader of these programs, okay? The beauty of citizenship is it's irrevocable. If the, any residency status can be canceled by the hosted country, if you, for example, break certain rules, if you, I don't know, in Switzerland, you can break minor rules, like uh, get few speeding tickets, and next year your, your status cannot be extended, and you lose your status, okay? If you're a citizen, that's it. You, you, you're there for, for your life. Okay, um, uh, so and a lot of people prefer become citizen and get all the privileges associated with this. Plus, the citizenship status uh, can be extended to your spouse and to all your kids, and automatically to your grandkids. And uh, obviously, a lot of people interested in becoming European, and uh, there are only two countries in Europe which provide this status: uh, um, Cyprus and Malta. Maltese program is quite questionable. A lot of issues related to this. I mean, the final, the final uh, uh, result, the passports is probably similar to Cypriot, but the process is much more complicated and much less predictable. And the refusal rate is about 40%, which makes it very, very kind of uh, uh, risky bet for people investing into Maltese economy. Whereas uh, in Cyprus, uh, yes, investment is pretty high. It's 2 million euros. Now the increase is to, to 2 million 150,000. There is mm -hmm. an extra tax introduced this year. Sorry, uh, late last year. But the good news is that this money is not wasted. This money is being invested into real estate, which belongs to you. This is your asset, which you can liquidate in five years after holding. So my task became, how can I make this investment very appealing in terms of traditional requirements, whether it's uh, margins, whether it's volatility, whether the liquidity of this investment. So where people would invest in any case, okay? 
And if that's become appealing by itself, then the citizenship uh, goes as a bonus on the top of this project, okay? That's philosophy, I think, made, uh, made our approach very successful. And we started to have a lot of clients, uh, primarily from non-European countries, Russia, China, Middle East, South Africa, Indonesia, Vietnam, Mexico, Latin America, wishing to get uh, a, a European passport. And with this passport, I mean, very few people actually leave and, uh, after that in, in Cyprus. But if you can become European through Cypriot citizenship, you can live anywhere in Europe. Okay? Absolutely. And work, open the bank accounts, your kids can go to schools and universities. So it's really full kind of new life, which is open to, uh, to such a family. And it's actually done so very well, and it continues to do so. So I think it was brilliant that you really did capitalize on that and made it such a good part of your business structure. That's correct. Yeah, I think yes. we, we, still, we still stick to real estate. I think this is the most fundamental, most difficult part of this program because of if course. you don't invest properly, you can become European, but you can lose your uh, your investment or you can uh, kind of didn't make any money. So our fundamental advantage is to make sure that people make money on their investment plus the citizenship. That's a fundamental thing. Well, that's great. And so Andre, you've had a lot of successes in a lot of different fields. Tell me a business lesson that you've learned from actually one of your failures? Well, uh, I would say, you know, like uh, everything uh, which doesn't kill us, uh, as you know, makes us... Uh, Absolutely, that's <laughs> yeah. so true. So I would say I had uh, a lot of failures, and by failures, there are big ones and small ones. Sometimes you sure. hire someone believing this person will be incremental for your future growth, and it didn't happen, it doesn't happen. Okay. Sometimes you make mistake with uh, a client. Sometimes you, so there are a lot of things in business. It's inevitable where you keep making mistakes. And I think we learn only from mistakes. We don't learn from our successes. Just the opposite. Success is very misleading. They makes us believe that we're genius in certain right. ways, which kind of doesn't help, I would say. So I, I made tons of mistakes in my life and uh, started from entering the, the Sotheby's uh, realty brand. As I mentioned to you, I did it in the wrong time. Okay, And I tried to invest a lot of money and doing things and then facing the wall and then restructuring completely my, uh, my approach to business and my niche which I want to talk about so this difficulty actually made me now quite a unique businessman in Russia which occupies this particular niche niche which I, uh, nobody else does okay so uh, I think that that helps I generally I welcome difficulties I welcome failures I welcome uh, uncertainties I think if you're kind of smart enough to uh, uh, appreciate that they can be a good teacher, you learn from them. Absolutely. And I think it's also the agility. The one, the, one of the things that I know about you is that, that it's very agile. And you know, it was interesting. I had a recent, um, I did a recent interview with a mutual friend of ours, uh, Paul Kemp, who had said that it is, um, it was similar to what you're saying, that you don't learn from your uh, successes. And it was interesting to me, he said, it was uh, also very dangerous to start believing your own press 
And so I think with you especially, Andre, you are one of the most humble people that I know. And your humility, I believe, is also one of the keys to your success. You've had some wonderful successes in life. And you are incredibly humble and generous. And I think those are qualities which are very rare for those that have achieved the level of success that you've achieved and others. And I think that's really one of the key uh, elements also to your success. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate uh, these nice words. Uh, I simply, you know, uh, what I found in my life that uh, uh, um, uh, you have to look a little bit longer than just your next day or next month, okay? Yeah. And I came to the conclusion that uh, ultimate happiness comes from uh, um, empathy, you know, and, and comes I love from that. Not, yeah. not, not, not your financial success, okay? Money uh, and financial success cannot be your goal. It's kind of a byproduct, you know? Like if you tell, like same with love, same with happiness, you know? You cannot say, my next project, I want to be happy or I want to fall in love. It, it will not have a happen. It, it happens by itself. And same, I think, with the success in business. It's sort of, I think, the best way if you do what you like the most and you are fair with yourself, and success comes by itself in a way, you know? And then the financial success will follow. Don't, don't keep it and don't make it your ultimate goal because that, that's a recipe to, to disaster. I think that's a very sage advice. Um, let me ask you this, Andre. If you could go back and change, go back in time and change one thing, what would that thing be? Oh, that's a hard question. You know, honestly, <laughs> uh, I, I, would, I wouldn't change anything because I'm not... Uh, smart enough, uh, you know, to, uh, to guess what, uh, the, what the life or my history will be if I didn't certain, uh, make certain steps or even certain mistakes. So, uh, you know, even, even the, the very kind of bad mistakes I made, and I know about them, but maybe I wouldn't get the lesson from them so right. it's it's very hard I, I wouldn't say that i regret i wouldn't say that i would did it differently um i think every element whether good or bad black or white they had a certain kind of part in my life and i'm trying to be appreciative of everything i've done i'm trying to be critical i'm trying to be open and fair but i wouldn't change anything you know, I think it's really interesting because um, I've been asked that question before and I've always come back with a very similar answer than what you just gave me. And I think that, you know, it, there's, for me, um, I don't believe in regrets. I believe that, you know, you've had your challenges in life, you go through life and you're, what you're supposed to do is take those lessons away and you're supposed to just understand you know whatever challenges were put there a you survived them and b this is what you learned from them so i actually enjoyed that answer okay <laughs> and then i have one more for you and i always like okay. to ask um uh, my guests this question uh, because i think that the answer is sort of 
allows people to be pensive and uh, some uh, some similarities real resonate with listeners as well. But what would you like your legacy to be, Andre? That's an interesting question, Mike. Um, uh, I probably would love to build a very successful partnership. And when I'm ready to leave uh, active business, I want to leave the whole kind of empire I built to my partners. And I think selecting uh, the right partners and building the relationship with them and eventually building the uh, proper template of the business relationship between the partners is something which keeps me busy right now, okay? Uh, I definitely somebody who believes in synergy between different people, okay? And because I'm building now quite an international, if not say kind of global approach, okay? With different territories, different cross-cultural differences, different nationalities. I wanted to build a very strong team of international partners, okay? And uh, I would be happy if this partnership survives me. It continues to exist and be a successful company after I decide to retire. That would be a, a, a kind of a legacy I'm thinking of. And I love that. It's always that you always have that thought of, of what you can leave for others. And every, every, you know, it's been from the beginning that I've known you. And it's such a great quality. So, uh, Andre, thank you very much for your time today, for your questions. It was a fascinating, really, sort of trajectory and, and, and to sort of take the journey of your life. And it was uh, very fascinating for me, even though we have a long friendship. Learned so much about you in this conversation. And I really thank you for your candor and the lessons that you shared with uh, me and with the listeners today. Thank you, Michael. It was a great conversation. I appreciated your questions, your interest uh, into what I'm doing, into my country, into my history. Uh, it's always uh, very, very interesting, even for myself, to go back and look at this and critically analyze this. So appreciate your interest. Thanks. Thank you again. And thank you for all of you for joining. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Thank you very much. <laughs>